Amen. Good morning. Glad you're here. My name is Ben, one of the pastors at Hope. Today we're going to be in Psalm chapter 51 or Psalm 51. A uh, little Bible trivia for you. They're not chapters in Psalms, there's just Psalms. So if you want to get around somebody real pedantic, wait for that one. If you say Psalm chapter 51 and they go, hmm, I think you mean Psalm 51. They are correct, uh, even if they're not all that fun to be around. It is Psalm 51 that we're going to be in today. You can flip or tap your way there. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. And in this Psalm, I think maybe more clearly than almost anywhere else in Scripture, we have the reason why we praise We have the thing that unifies Christians in their praise. Last week we talked about Psalm 150. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. Louder, louder, loud. Crashing cymbals with the lute, with the harp. Praise Him. But why? Yes, we praise Him because He's grand and He's glorious and He's holy, but you don't even get that. What are you praising Him for, for you? What is it that unites Christians in their praise? So that hallelujah is not just saying, I praise Him, but hallelujah is me telling you to praise Him. Why is it that I can have confidence that I can command it because I know that we praise Him? You have denominations all over the world. Those are helpful in a way. They let you know what you're dealing with. They let you know exactly what that church is. But they're not helpful in a way, too, because they can kind of um, confuse the unity that we do feel around this one thing. Of course, there's going to be churches that are separated by language and background. I only speak English. I can't preach in multiple languages at one time. There's going to be churches that have to split that way. There are going to be backgrounds that are a little different in the way that they do the music and the way that they express what it is to be a Christian. Some places are going to be more formal and reserved. That's not a bad thing. Some places are going to be even louder and maybe more casual than we are. That might be a bad thing because we're pretty loud and pretty casual. I don't know how you go much further that direction, but it's not a sin. And yet, while they may look different, what is it that unifies those believers? What, what is it that unifies believers across differing views about the current situation? I've had the pleasure, the difficult pleasure this week of talking to several of you. And some of those people had very differing views from each other. And yet they expressed a love and a consistency that went beyond very real differences. I've been on my knees this week in a way I haven't been other weeks, God forgive me, but I've been driven there by difficult situations. And yet, I've been praising God by the way that you have been unified rather than pulled apart, even though you have differing views on some of this stuff. What is it that can hold us together? What is it that does hold us together? 
You go to the grocery store, you can get anybody to agree to the sentence, 2020 has not been my favorite year. Everybody agrees with that. But the church can go much further. We can say positive things, positive things that we do agree on, positive things that are of such incredible importance that they unify across all these other bounds. Every Christian of every tribe, nation, era, and tongue can begin with Psalm 51. Read the first three verses with me. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What do you see there? He says transgressions, iniquity, and sin. We've got those things. That's a concept that's in this. He says God's steadfast love, his mercy, and some sort of ability that God has to wash that sin away, to address that sin. He talks about the way in which that mercy meets that sin. He's talking about the gospel. This is Old Testament, but he's talking about the gospel. And this specific psalm, like so many written by David, expresses how this gospel is expressed in a time of his life that wasn't just a regular day. We haven't had a regular day in some time. The psalm, like so many of the psalms that King David wrote, so Psalm 150, we talked last week about King David dancing in that ephod and becoming even more undignified than this to show his pleasure, his joy in God's presence coming back to Jerusalem. He was an exemplary example of praise towards God. And he wrote many of the psalms, and he actually also wrote this psalm, but he wrote this psalm about the lowest moment in his life. So what I want us to do is to see that story, to see this psalm, and then to ask how it can connect with us, reach past or through or down into all the things that make us different and grab something so central, so central that it will unify you to everyone else who's had that same experience, no matter what other difficulties or differences you have. First, let's think about the story. So King David is the king. He's the anointed one. He had the prophet Samuel anoint him, giving God's blessing on him to be the good king. And he was a good king. He led the people in all kinds of incredible uh, conquering of their enemies. He set up good leadership throughout the kingdom. They experienced a great deal of safety, a great deal of victory, a great deal of wealth. And he led the people in their praises. He was a king who wasn't just a good administrator or a good victor on the battlefield. He was a king who was a good worship leader. He could exemplify for the people the way that they were supposed to understand who God is and how God relates to him. And yet, like so many things in David's life, he had this sort of exaggeration of something that happens in our lives. So, David, this good king sees a lady bathing. 
It's in the summertime, and the summertime is when these guys would go on campaign. That's when they'd go to war against their enemies. And he sent out his armies rather than going with them himself. So he's a little lazy. Decided to take a summer off. And in doing so, he went up to the roof. Very common thing in a hot part of the world. In the really hot part of the day, to get up a little higher, to get where maybe it's going to be a little windy, and get up onto your roof. He goes up onto his roof. He's looking out over the city, and he sees a lady who is bathing in the dress you are when you bathe. Being king, he allowed his desires to just become reality. He takes her. He's with her. She becomes pregnant. And he gets in a sticky situation because she already has a husband. Something he could have found out if he had tried, if he had cared. The husband's one of David's mighty men out warring for Israel. So she's pregnant, clearly not from the husband. So then David has to plot to hide his sin. He's not able to do that. And so then... He decides to just have the husband killed. He does that, has the cover-up. He can now marry the lady and wait for the baby. And publicly, she's now his wife. That's now his child. Nobody has to know. But God, who's the true king, so King David is a king, a great king, but he's not the king. God, who's the king sees all of this, and he sends in his prophet. The guy's name was Nathan. And Nathan comes in before the king, and he starts to tell the king about these two neighbors. Now, you should know that the king in those times was somebody who was also judge and jury. They would bring cases to the king, and it was his job to see through it and say, this is what's righteous, this is what's just, and because I'm king, I'm going to bring that about. So this wasn't uncommon for somebody to bring to David a case Nathan brings to David a case, and he says there's two, two neighbors. One's very wealthy, one's very poor. The one has flocks and flocks and flocks of sheep. The other has just one lamb, and he loves this lamb, so much so that he keeps it inside with the family, and he feeds the lamb from his own table and from the lamb drinks from his own cup. And you say, ooh, but... People do that with their pets. I don't know that you can judge. Uh, so he does that and to the point that he even considers the lamb one of his daughters is what it says. And again, you go, really? But, hello, get out in the pet world and just see what kind of stuff goes on there. No judgment, but I'm saying you can understand. Then the wealthy neighbor has a friend come over unexpectedly and instead of sacrificing one of his animals, giving up one of his animals to prepare a mighty feast for this guy, or just making a regular feast for this guy, he takes the lamb from the man who only has the one lamb and kills it and gives it to his guest. Now, you can imagine that David, who still has an idea of what justice is, gets angry. It says in 2 Samuel 12, which 2 Samuel 11 and 12 are a great place to go this afternoon if you want to read this whole story. 2 Samuel 12, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan points his finger at David says, 
you are the man. David understands. This story was really just a story, but it finally helps him to see, to illustrate not only what it is that he's done to Uriah, which was the wife of the husband of this lady Bathsheba, the one that he killed. It helps him not only to see that, but to understand that God saw it, that God knows. And his sin, his transgression, his iniquity is finally opened up to him, and he finally sees the filth of it. One quick note as we're reading through the Psalms, you're going to see a lot of what's called parallelism, which means they'll say the same thing twice in slightly different ways. There's a poetry to that, and part of what's cool about it is that it translates into any language. What you can't do in any language is meter. What you can't do in any language is rhyme. What you can do in any language is parallelism. And God in his sovereignty puts this poetry in a way that can be translated into any language. And as you're reading the psalm, you're going to see that more and more, where he'll say the same thing multiple times. In the first three of these verses, it's saying, I have sinned, Father. I'm seeing my iniquity. I know that I have transgressions. And you say, well, yeah, you have transgressions. You just killed that guy and took his wife. Uh, I'm sorry. You took that guy's wife and then you killed him. Yeah, you've got sin. Duh, you've got sin, but not duh. Sin has the effect of numbing you to sin. You ever watch that show Hoarders? We've never watched it. I can't like gear myself up emotionally to watch this show, but you can see just the previews of it or whatever. These people are living in incredible filth. Piles and piles and piles of it. And the only person who doesn't see it is the hoarder. Everybody else can see it. TV shows made because they know that millions of people will watch it and all of us will see the filth in that home. But there's one person who doesn't see it. The whole goal is not to teach them better ways to throw things away. The whole goal is to help them see what a healthy lifestyle looks like. You ever see a child who first gets glasses? They put it on YouTube sometimes and it's like the miracle of giving sight. You don't always know that your kid can't see well, and so often children will get pretty far before you realize that they can't see, and then they finally are given glasses. You didn't realize how bad it was. You didn't know that other people couldn't see like you couldn't see. But you just now, all of a sudden, whoosh, you can see. Sin has this deadening effect. You may not understand your sin, but God does. He does see it. The others around you do see it. And God is going to show you your sin, just like he did with Nathan, showing David his sin. And as David starts to understand his sin, immediately he starts to see also these other facts about God. God is not just just. He's not just righteous. He is also merciful. He's also loving How do we know that? Well, you see it through the whole story of the Scriptures. The Bible is one consistent story where in the very beginning, God gives Adam and Eve life. They immediately rebel against Him. And yet the Bible doesn't end, does it? It's a big, thick book. It could have just been two chapters. He said, you eat of the fruit, you surely die. Good? We're all clear on that? Yes. Then, next chapter, they're eating of the fruit. Could the Bible not have ended there where God said, okay, well, you know, told you. And then start over or don't start over or whatever you want to do. It's a two-chapter book. Why does that not happen? Because he is faithful. Because he's steadfast and loving and merciful. 
You don't get too much further in until the wickedness of the world was so great that he decides he's going to wipe everybody out. Except for that, he's merciful. So he grabs this Noah guy and he has him build an ark. You don't get too much further before the nations, the people that are descended from Noah, are so rebellious against God that they start building a tower to storm heaven itself. He confuses the languages, and yet, because he's so loving, the very next story is how he takes for his own pleasure this guy Abraham, not because Abraham's godly. Read about Abraham if you think he's godly. Not because Abraham's godly. He just takes him. And because of his steadfast love, he puts in this Abraham guy a nation, a promise, a people, a land. He's going to do some big thing. He's going to restore Somehow, he's going to restore the relationship that he has with his people, with people who have rejected him and run from him. The psalm continues. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let's be real for a moment. If God delights in truth on your inward being, you understanding yourself well, understanding yourself well before Him, then let's be real about who you are. David understood in principle what I think you and I need to understand in principle which is we are children of doom. From the beginning, we have a posture, a posture of rejection and rebellion towards God. How do we know that? The rest of the Bible is so clear about it. See, sin is not just killing husbands and taking their wives. When Jesus comes along, he teaches that it goes much deeper. It's actually, in fact, the heart disposition that leads to that fruit. How do you know that? Because let's just really be clear and ask the question that if you had the power and authority that David did, how many men would you have killed and how many wives would you have taken? If every time you had in your mind that thought of hate, anger towards somebody... If every time you did that, they died. And if every time some lady came walking across and you had that emotion, you had that connection, that feeling, that desire, she became your wife, how many husbands would you have killed? and How many wives would you have? Because you don't have the power, because you don't have the wherewithal, because you don't have the guts to pull off this stuff that you desire, doesn't mean you don't desire it. And when Jesus teaches about your heart and mine, oh my gosh, and mine, he says, you've heard it said you don't commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not just the act, it's the desire. This same Jesus says that you and I are called to love God, whole laws put together in this, to love God and to love our neighbor. That's the whole law. Do you love God? Do you love Him constantly? Or 
is what's happening with every sin that you commit, whether it's lust or anger, whether it's one of these others that are listed. I mean, you run Romans chapter 1. There's all kinds of them. Uh, the beginning of uh, 1, 29, or end of 29, beginning of 30, it says, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. You have lists like this. This list goes on. There are lists like this all throughout Scripture where they just start giving sin after sin after sin after sin. What they're saying is... It's not just that you've done this stuff, it's that you wanted to do this stuff. And that in wanting to do this stuff, you have walked away from the love you have towards God. The love you're commanded to have towards God. And you've accepted instead a posture of rebellion. This isn't easy to hear, but you've got to hear it. Because until you do, you can't get to the sweetness. Is this true of you? The Bible says that it is. And the reason that I read this list is it has two things I want to highlight. One is slander. If you're like me, you kind of understood what that word meant, but you had to reach to get an exact definition because you're not like identifying it in your world regularly. But what that word means is whenever someone says something untrue about someone else that results intentionally or unintentionally in damaging that someone's reputation. Uh Uh-oh. What is social media? If you remove slander from social media, what's left? Cats. (laughs) If you take away most of the slander from our news media, what's left? Is that you? Do you have that? Please be careful. We're not only saying, oh, geez, I've done that before, and and now show me the gospel. Yeah, that's the headline. But also, stop. Stop. Be careful. Think clearly before you forward. Is this something that's slander? And it also says something else that's really helpful. It says, (laughs) and it puts them right next to each other, and I know I've said this before, but it never gets old to me. He writes, inventors of evil which has to be the most horrible phrase that you could ever have put on top of your head from Scripture. After thousands of years of humanity, this guy is still a genius at evil. He's still inventing. He's Elon Musk. He's still inventing new things you didn't know existed, but not cars. Evil. And then, equivalent, disobedient to parents. I don't think I have invented any new evil but I've definitely been disobedient to my parents. Why does that matter? It's so helpful because it makes the same point. It's not just that, oh my goodness, every now and again you're disobedient to your parents. It makes the point that your parents represent God's authority in your life. They represent it. It's why it's in the Ten Commandments to be obedient to your parents. Honor your father and your mother. You see in your father and your mother, or you should, a reflection of God's authority in your life. And so when you rebel against them, what are you really doing? You have to see this. It has to land. We preach the Bible, and this psalm is just bathed in that idea. You have to start with that realization that, yes, God is holy, but I am not. So, what solution can there be? Big chunk. Let's read 7 through 15. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. 
Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and then uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So, yes, you have to understand, deeply understand, that this transgression, iniquity, sin thing, it's not a David problem or just a murderer, adulterer problem. It's a human problem. It's a you problem and a Ben problem. It's a problem. But, understanding that, you can then put it under these other verses, these other ideas, these other pleas that God can make some kind of deliverance for you. And that if he does, when he does, if you allow him to, the rest of your life rings out in praise. So, yesterday, I got up a little early. I wanted to pray. I know I would fall back asleep if I just sat. So I started walking. And as I'm walking, I was praying through the Lord's Prayer. Because if I don't pray through like something that's structured, my brain, I just start wondering and thinking about all kinds of stuff and just never really end up praying. So... I'm praying through the Lord's Prayer. I thought, I didn't get very far. I said, our Father, and I'm singing about how good it is that God's adopted us into His family, that He calls us His Father in Christ, our Father who is in heaven. And I thought about how God is in heaven, that place that in Christ we're headed, that place that's pure and perfect. And I was aware, I'm always aware of how hard things are for us right now and how much of it is just our fault. It's not natural disasters, it's just us. And I was so glad that God's in heaven. Not just as king, not just as ruler and lord of everything, but because it meant that he's, he's away from us. There's a place that's clean and has never gotten our stuff on it. There's a place that, that he is in a place where he really is perfectly pure and good. I may not be there, but it's so good to at least know that there is a there. You're, you're World War II, you're, you're in Germany, you're in France, and how pleasant is it to know that there is still that prairie, there is still that homestead back in the States. I know that I'm in hell, but someone else is in heaven. I had that thought, it made me so happy. But it took, what, a quarter of a second to realize that he didn't stay in heaven. Our sin didn't stay away from him. Our corruption can't reach up to heaven, but heaven can reach down to us. And as awful as we are, he decided to take our sin on himself. Verses 16 and 17. You won't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Seems out of left field. He's pleading for some kind of cleansing. And then he's starting to talk about sacrifice again. Why? Well, in David's time, they would have had a temple with real animal sacrifice. Those sacrifices were both a picture and a placeholder. They were a very clear picture of what your sin meant before God. 
That is, that animal was killed and its blood was shed. That was what you deserve for your sin against God. The picture was that this thing was receiving your sin, was taking your sin, so that even though you're the sinner, you go away free. And even though thing is pure, morally, they're, you know, nothing. They're just animals. But I'm saying that they would be representatively pure. You weren't supposed to bring spotted animals. You were supposed to bring ones that were pure. And while that thing had its blood spilt, you went away free. It's a picture. What's it a picture of? It's a picture of the thing that it's a placeholder for. It's a placeholder because there was one that would come that really would be pure, that really would be morally, possibly not pure. And yet he was totally pure. He was without sin. And even though he was without sin, he took upon himself our sin. In David's time, they're having faith looking forward. In our time, we're having faith looking back on the event, the moment, the hours when Jesus takes our sin, when heaven takes our filth upon himself and dies. That's what unifies Christians. Do you know this? Has it touched you? Can you think about this with dry eyes? Can I guess that some of our disunity is because you haven't been thinking about this, the thing that unifies us? A person who's thinking about Christianity, does any of this make sense? Do you see why it would resound in praise that these who don't deserve God's love, receive it. Those who are covered in sin would have that sin blotted out, purged, cleaned. Do you understand the kind of worship that would rebound from knowing that your heart was that bad and yet God's reached that low because His love was so great? You don't come to Christianity because you're killing it. You come to Christianity because you're not and because he will die for you. So every Christian you've ever admired, if they really understand their stuff, knows that they're lower than worms. And yet God has loved them to the skies. We're not a group of people who are doing well. We're a people who have been forgiven. So that God can say, through David, and he's expressing as he's thinking about this. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I, I don't know if you think about this enough. If you remembered it this morning, if you remembered it a hundred times this morning, I don't know that you're thinking about this enough. This is the blazing firebrand at the center of everything we believe. And if we will really get it, if you will really receive it, then the last two verses, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you're going to delight in right sacrifices, burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls are going to be offered on your altar. What's he saying? That as individuals come to know him and as people 
begin to worship him, then things start to go the way they're supposed to go. What's wrong with the world? A thousand, thousand things. What's most wrong with the world? Your heart and mine. So how do we fix the world? A thousand, thousand ways. How do we most fix the world? It's by having our hearts changed. Have you cried out to God like this psalmist? Yeah, you do have to understand your sin and you do have to admit it. But if you do and if you cry out in this way, do you see what he does? Do you see how he heals? Do you see how he binds up? Do you see how he forgives? Consequences are real. It's not like those just disappear. But eternal consequences... They're put on Christ's head instead of your own. And if that happens, what does he say? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'm going to teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. If you get this, not only do you have joy in your life, but you begin to be fixed and to get out into the world and share the one thing that will fix those that need him. Not only are my mouth, is my mouth going to be open to declare your praise, but sinners will return to you. This kind of promise language should get you excited because I'm telling you that if you fix yourself right here, it's going to unify our church. It's going to make your heart explode with praise and it's going to fix the world. It's going to open your mouth and then sinners are going to return to God. And then those people are going to go, go through the same thing. And the united people of God are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the world is going to be changed. Not really, not fully. We're still looking for God to come back and just wipe this whole thing out and start a new heaven and a new earth. But person after person after person will have their whole eternity go from hell to heaven. Is that worth it? Oh, of course. Of course. So I'm calling on you to renew your mind. I'm calling on you to believe these things and pray through these things. I'm calling on you not to run away from the hard things because it's only through them that you see the glorious things. And I'm calling you as a church, as you do that, to unify. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would make these things real to us, that you would teach them to us all the way down so that we really understand, we really start to get it, if we become a people who praise, and not just praise with our lips, but praise all the way through, praise with integrity, and have a praise that unifies, that explodes in true joy, but also brings people to yourself. Please do this, Father, for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray. Amen.